also find out how to get wrong bones, which is really nothing to do or giggling in the research about medicine. But for now, we're going to hand over to Rosie, so let's welcome her if she comes up. <laughs> no sliding. Great. Oh, good morning, everyone. In the uh, building here and also at home, um, whenever you're watching this, it's so great to have you with us this morning. So I have just got up here, but I'm actually just about to get down um, for just a second again, because I've asked um, Joe and Nathan if they will read our passage for us this morning. Um, and um, just to help us kind of understand what's going on in this passage in Hebrews today, um, the author is comparing the old covenant with the new covenant. So things that happen in the Old Testament compared with the things that Jesus has done. So um, as uh, Joe and Nathan come up, um, Joe is going to read the things that are about the old covenant. So every time Joe, he's wearing a hat, that's how you can tell. Um, anytime Joe with the hat speaks, and that's stuff that's about the old covenant. Um, and then everything Nathan says is about what's, what's Jesus done? What's the new covenant? Um, so um, I'll be back in a second and um, they'll read for us now. Cool beans. Can everybody hear me? Hello? Hello, hello. Hey. Cool. Um, so I'm starting Old Covenant and then New Covenant. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves, with better sacrifices than these, for Christ has entered... Not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. But into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. As the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with the sin, but to save those who are eagerly await waiting for him. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, and every priest stands at daily service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for him for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Great, thanks guys. I would point out as well that Joe and Nathan live together, which is why they could stand like that, um, just if anyone was wondering. Um, great, so... Um, 
Uh, yesterday, um, Facebook reminded me that it has been a whole year since we first did our home groups on Zoom. Now, I don't know if you remember those first times logging into Facebook. Uh, no, well, when you were like 12, no. Logging into Zoom. Um, <laughs> suddenly feeling very disloyal to Skype, trying to help elderly relatives find the mute button, and having to stare at our own faces in conversation for the first time. And I think we all quickly realized that this was only a faint copy of the real thing. It was only a shadow of real connection. How it feels to be in the room with someone or to have a conversation. It was a, a poor copy of that feeling. A time that this was really particularly apparent to me was um, one of the first times we were meeting home group leaders trying to work out how are we going to do home groups on Zoom, how are we going to do worship and Bible studies. I think Chris Barton was there and we were like, oh, let's practice doing a worship time. We're like, yeah, great, we'll just all sing together, It'd be lovely, glorious. So um, Chris was like, I'll start a song, you can just join in, all unmuted. Little did we know. Um, so <laughs> Chris starts singing and everyone joins in. And... I do hope that it was a sweet sound to the Lord, but it was not to anyone else. Zoom isn't a bad thing. It's actually, it's been a bit of a gift to us. It's been a massive gift to us over the last year, hasn't it? Because it allows us to experience a version of the thing that we long for so much. But it's also kind of naff. It's kind of difficult because it's a constant reminder that it's not the real thing. In the passage we just heard, in the bits about the Old Testament, um, we heard about holy places made with hands. And this is uh, talking about a place called the tabernacle, which is something we've heard a bit about in our Hebrew series so far, isn't it? Now, here's a, maybe a comparison you've never heard before. The tabernacle was a bit like Zoom. Bit surreal, but let, let me explain why. <laughs> um, the tabernacle is a shadow. It's a copy of a heavenly reality. It's not quite the real thing, but it points to the real thing. Just as Zoom is a shadow of the real thing, the tabernacle was a real place on earth that was a shadow of a real place in heaven. So what was the tabernacle? Um, really quick um, backstory. God had led his people out of Egypt through the Red Sea, into the desert where they lived in tents. Thousands and thousands of tents. I don't know if you imagine the Exodus as maybe like 200 people. It was probably closer to 2 million people. At the very center of thousands of these tents was a tent that God himself designed. He gave specific measurements and instructions about how to build it because he said, I'm going to come and dwell in this tent myself. This is going to be the place that I dwell among you. So important that when we read the Old Testament, or actually any of the Bible, that we remember that the heartbeat of God is that he would come and dwell with his people. We can read it as, as instructions or um, of law, things to do, but all of those things were allowing God to come and dwell with his people and to be their God. This was his, the reason he actually gives for why he led the people out of Egypt. He says, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Why? 
that I might dwell among them. So let me describe a little bit of what this tabernacle was like. It was a rectangular tent, and in it were rooms, kind of rooms within rooms, in increasing, or, uh, increasing holiness as you got towards the central rooms. The very central room was a place called the Most Holy Place, the Holy of Holies. And this was the place where God's presence dwelt. The meaning of the word holy will help us understand a bit what this room was like. The word holy means set apart, utterly good, utterly pure. In other words, utterly unlike the people with all their mess and squabbles and mistakes and sin. And that meant that the most holy place was not a place that they could just walk into. No one could enter the most holy place because no sin could enter the most holy place. The weight and the glory of the holiness of God could allow no single speck of sin. Two million Israelites camped around this tabernacle and there was no one pure enough. No one holy, not even close. The presence of the Almighty God was not a safe place for a sinner to be. And so it was separated from the rest of the tabernacle, the rest of the rooms, with this thick woven curtain. Now, again, I don't know if you imagine like the curtain of the tabernacle, like kind of drapes in your student bedroom, but this was a thick curtain, so heavy and it covered each of the sides. No one could get in. And so the people of Israel lived with this physical reminder that the way was not open to the presence of God. There was one exception to this. The most holy place could be entered by a human once a year. On one day a year, the Day of Atonement, Entering the Holy of Holies was the privilege and the duty and the burden of one man, the high priest. And this is what the high priest would do. He would enter, probably with some trepidation, the, the most holy place. Actually, it was so dangerous in a way that um, you might have heard he had like, um, like a rope tied to his ankle and people kind of holding it on the other end, because if he were to die in that room, no one could go in to get him, so they'd have to kind of pull him out. So I'm sure that was a nice moment, wasn't it, getting that rope tied? Like, um, And he would enter with a bowl of blood from the sacrifice of an animal. And with this blood, it was like the high priest was saying, God, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So a sacrifice has been made on behalf of these people. Here is the evidence in this bowl. Here is the blood. Receive this animal's blood in the place of these people. The people's sin deserve death. This animal has died in their place. Yeah? And this would happen every single year, year after year after year. A sacrifice was made on behalf of the people. Every year, the high priest would represent the people 
in the most holy place before God. Now, verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 24 from our reading today tells us that everything I've just described, the tabernacle, the priest, the sacrifice, everything that's going on here is a shadow that points to a heavenly reality. It's all a story. It's showing us, it's pointing towards a better thing. And we have a description of that better thing the heavenly reality in the book of Revelation. We're going to take just a quick step out of Hebrews for a second because I want us to see a description of what, what the holy, of holies in heaven looks like. Um, I've invited Pip up um, just for a few minutes because um, when, I, when I read this passage, when I imagine um, this, I always imagine it with sound and music. So... Um, um, we're going to hear the words and also kind of hear um, something of the atmosphere. And as I read this, I want you to imagine that it's like you're there in this throne room in heaven. But if it helps close your eyes, I want you to imagine in your mind's eye that it's like you're looking in on this from outside. You're kind of watching what's happening. So, um, Revelation 4, this is what the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle is a copy of. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are like the seven spirits of God, and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. I want you to kind of stay uh, imagining this scene. You, it's like you can see this indescribable scene. Color and light and flashes of lightning coming from the throne itself. 
creatures with eyes everywhere that if they saw you, they would see straight through you and the never ceasing worship of the one on the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. And as you kind of see this place, as you look in on this place, you see the utter perfection of God. You think I cannot be here. I am a sinner. I'm unholy. If I have to stand before the one on this throne, I will surely die. And then you see the door to this throne room open and in walks a human man. And it's like the whole of heaven holds its breath. And you think, who is this who could possibly come before the throne and live? And as he approaches the throne of God, you see that he is carrying in a bowl the blood of a sacrifice. For this is a high priest. And you realize he's not there on his own behalf. He's not coming for himself. Christ has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Thanks, Pip. See you again in a few minutes, probably. So this event that we've just seen described was an event that really happened once. And this is the singular one event that every day of atonement in the tabernacle was pointing towards. For hundreds of years, every time the high priest entered with the blood of goats and bulls, he was pointing to this one event, the coming of the great high priest, who would stand in the presence of God on behalf of the people. Not now with the blood of animals, but the blood of a sacrifice so precious that it has the power to put away sin for all time. See, the, the blood of goats and bulls was actually never going to be enough to do away with our sin. It actually says that here in our passage today in uh, 10 verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sins. That's because they were simply a shadow, pointing to the reality that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. They were a copy, a placeholder, teaching us that sin requires death, that it results in the spilling of blood. They were pointing to something much more glorious, much more powerful. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself, who would willingly suffer death to bear the sins of many, to become in one man both the high priest and the high priest's sacrifice. And this time, it's not a sacrifice that has to be made again and again and again. The way it was under the old ways, the work was never finished. No, now it is finished. It's done. As we sung earlier, 
once for all time. Some of you may be fans of the film director Christopher Nolan, fan in our household. Um, he directed um, Inception and Tenet. Anyone see that? Congratulations if you understood it. I myself did understand it after reading 13 articles <laughs> explaining it about midnight after watching it. <laughs> also, if you're new to Nottingham, um, we're like really proud that part of the third Batman film was filmed at Woolerton Hall. So. Um, this thing came out about Christopher Nolan last night. Look, I don't know if it's true, so I don't want to slander, but um, this thing came out that um, Christopher Nolan doesn't allow chairs on his film sets. And this was the quote about this. It said, he doesn't allow chairs, and his reasoning is, if you have chairs, people will sit with you so far, and if they're sitting, they're not working. So we heard that the tabernacle is like Zoom. I have another surreal tabernacle comparison for you this morning, potentially even more surreal. The tabernacle is like a Christopher Nolan film set. And that's because neither of them have chairs. <laughs> I actually wasn't meaning for that to be funny, but <laughs> great. <laughs> neither of them have chairs for the same reason. The work is never finished. The writer of Hebrews makes this point in chapter 10, verse 11. And the priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Can you feel the exhaustion of that sentence? Maybe for some of you, that feels like a description of how your spiritual life has felt recently frantically scurrying around, the work is never finished, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. But if we read on, we see the good news. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. How much do we all need to hear that today? There are no longer any sacrifices that need to be made for you. Jesus has paid the full price, done the full work, and he has sat down. What happens in our lives with God if we, if we don't fully believe this? If we kind of only half believe this? Do you remember when you were a kid and something's happened you know you've done something wrong, maybe on purpose, but maybe by accident, and you've, uh, you've broken one of your mum's vases, or you've lost something really important, um, or you've overslept and you're late. When you knew you were about to be in trouble, when you knew you're about to be found out, you're kind of fearful about the interaction you're about to have, what do you instantly start doing? Hiding the evidence, planning your excuse, finding someone to blame, right? When I was uh, a kid, there's one particular incident that I can remember that I, um, I succumbed to the temptation of cutting my friend's hair with kitchen scissors. I don't know what the appeal is, but it, I succumbed <laughs> to the, the intoxicating temptation. 
And I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it. And then I did it, and then instant regret. <laughs> instant fear. I've done something terrible. And I, I did this. I, um, I hid the evidence, and then I hid myself in my own parents' house, um, behind a sofa. <laughs> and in retrospect, it was a short-term solution, that. But don't we do that as adults before God? It's actually the oldest trick in the book. Think of Adam and Eve. They eat the fruit. What do they do? They hide, try to cover themselves up. And then Adam literally says, she made me do it. Like, they blame one another. Don't we try and pretend with God that things haven't happened? We, oh, we didn't do that. And then hope he won't notice. Hide the evidence. Cover ourselves up. Don't we make excuses? Like, yeah, I know I said that, I know I did that, I know I thought that, but look, God, it's been a hard year. Things aren't fair for me. Oh, it's not as bad as them. It's not as bad as what they did. They do that all the time. Our attempts to minimize our own sin are not a pleasing sacrifice to God. And they will never bring us peace. Remember the holiness of God in that throne room. Imagine coming before him with this like tatty list of excuses. Those attempts are not going to cover us. It's actually only when we grasp the enormity of our sin before the holiness of God that we realize how ineffective any of our own attempts to cover it up will be. And it's then that we rest in the finished work that only Jesus could accomplish. And whilst we don't have to minimize our sin, or in fact can't minimize our sin, we also don't have to do the opposite. You don't have to plead with God and beg for forgiveness that has already been paid for. Don't we do that? We think, oh, if I can just articulate enough ways of saying sorry, maybe then he'll forgive me. If we think, oh, if he can see that, I really, really, really mean it this time, then that might be effective before the throne. That might work. Actually, then we put confidence in our own prayers, our ability to repent well enough. When we know that every sin in our past, in our present, and our future has already been paid for by that one event, that single offering for all time, it's then we can come confidently before the throne, knowing it's all finished. There's no atonement left to be made for your sin. You don't go in and out of being covered by the sacrifice of Jesus. You aren't more or less atoned for on good and bad days. It was enough. He is enough for you. I'm going to invite the band up. We're going to worship in a second. I just want us to, to draw near to God again in worship. But um, I just want to let that sink in for a moment. Your sin has been put away once and for all. I love that phrase in this passage, to put away sin. That habit of sin that you feel like you're stuck in, 
that mistake that you find you make again and again, that, that thing you've actually never told anyone about, all of it is completely covered by the blood that Jesus brought before the presence of God on your behalf. And that blood is strong enough. The more that we let the sufficiency of Jesus's sacrifice shape us and work in our hearts, go down deep, the more that we will come boldly into the most holy place. We will freely and quickly confess our sin, knowing that we have one that's put it to an end for all time. Maybe if you're able to um, stand up at home or here in the room. I want us to finish by responding to an invitation that's a bit of a theme in the book of Hebrews. To draw near to God. No hiding, no fear. With awe and boldness, with assurance. For we have a great high priest. He is faithful. Why don't you just start speaking under your breath to him? If you're at home, start singing to him. We thank you, Jesus, that you have made a way and we welcome you to come and lead us before the throne again. Oh, you have made a way. You have made a way for us to come in. You have done it once and for all. We come before your throne. You've made a way, you've made a way, Jesus. You've made a way for us to come in. No blemish on us, no blemish. We stand now spotless before your throne. Oh, we thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus. Mm -hmm.